According to the National Center for Drug Abuse, over 165 million Americans ages 12 and up are currently abusing drugs or alcohol. Of those 165 million Americans, there is a mom, dad, sister, brother, wife, husband, son, daughter, or grandparent praying and pleading that they would stop. Addiction is a subject most people don't like to talk about and is kept behind closed doors. But the Finding Hope podcast will bring light to the subject and give families that are living in shame, guilt, hopelessness, fear, worry, and anger, tools and education to find strength, peace, happiness, joy, and hope. Hello, I'm Amy LaRue, Finding Hope Coordinator for Hope is Alive Ministries and your host for this Finding Hope podcast. At Hope is Alive, our mission is to radically change the lives of drug addicts, alcoholics, and those who love them. We do this through our intentional next level sober living homes and faith-based support groups for the loved ones of addicts called Finding Hope. Thank you for joining us today. Before we begin, I'm excited to announce that registration for our third annual Finding Hope Retreat is now open. We are quickly filling up, so don't miss your opportunity to be there this year. This year's retreat theme is Rooted in Truth, and it will be March 31st through April 2nd at Post Oak Lodge and Retreat in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This will all be done in a relaxed atmosphere with keynote speakers, including Hope is Alive's COO, Allison Lang, and Christian author and speaker, Karen Jenkins Salisbury. There will also be incredible breakout sessions, small group discussions, worship, and a time of self-care. You can learn more and register at hopeisalive.net forward slash rooted in truth, which will also be linked in today's show notes. But today I'm so excited. We have a very special guest joining me, Mr. Dylan Clem. And what's really exciting is you got to hear from his mom in episode 13. And so I asked Dylan to be a part of it. He was in town. And so I'm so excited um, that he's here today. And I first met him in 2020 in North Carolina, where he lives today at a Hope is Alive event. So welcome, Dylan. Thank you for having me. So will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So, uh, my name's Dylan. I'm a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. Um, a little about me. Uh, I'm a, I was a heroin addict for over 10 years. Uh, I transitioned into alcoholism, uh, at the end, but I grew up in, in a good home, uh, in South Tulsa in a city called Jinx and, uh, had everything that I, a boy needs. Um, I went to a good school, had a good family, uh, had good friends. Um, but addiction doesn't care about all that. Mm-mm. And, uh, and so, yeah, I went, I went down a dark road for a while. So when did you first turn to substances? So the first time I remember having a substance, uh, I was about 10 years old. Oh, wow. My dad, uh, we were out with, uh, he did motorcycles, things like that. So mm-hmm. he, he asked me to try some Crown Royal, and um, I remember hating it. Uh, but then maybe a couple years later, I remember smoking marijuana for the first time. I was in fifth grade. I don't really remember much about it. I just remember that I ate a lot after it. 
after having the marijuana. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and then things kind of took off in high school. Uh, probably my sophomore, junior year, the drinking kicked up a little bit. Uh, on the weekends, I remember I blacked out for the first time uh, my junior year. I woke up on the front lawn of this house uh, the next morning. But as far as like the chemical, like the the drugs, that really took off. I worked for a pharmacy in Jinx yeah. and, um, you know, I went to a huge school. I was around it a lot. And so I started taking pills. I uh, started stealing them from the pharmacy. Um and that's kind of how I was first introduced to substances. So when did you realize you're actually becoming dependent on the substances? So my memory's fuzzy, um, you know, a lot of drug abuse, but I do have a vague memory. I was living in my mom's basement. Um, I think she mentioned that in uh, her podcast with you, but um, I remember waking up and rolling over and feeling like just like oh like where where is it right mm. like um a panic almost right and uh just like going through all my drawers things like that and uh, i found a pill um i wasn't doing heroin yet um but i found an oxycotton and i remember just feeling the relief like mm. okay you know but then after that it's like okay I need more, like, where am I going to get more, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so that's the first memory I have. About how old were you? I graduated high school. I think I was probably about 19. Okay. Yeah. So you re you rolled over and it's like, oh my gosh, I need this, yeah. you know? And then you got it and you have that sensory relief. And I think so many of us um, out there listening um, that love someone with a substance use disorder, don't understand that, right? We see it as the other side, like, why can't they stop? Why can't they stop? So um, tell us, like, you roll over and you think you need it. What, why did you feel, I mean, I know it's a brain disease and all of that, but can you expand on that a little bit more? Why did I feel that I needed it? Uh, because... <laughs> This might seem strange, but because I couldn't be myself without it, um, because uh, it's almost like my whole body shut down mentally, mm. emotionally, physically, spiritually, right? Like everything was shut down. I was operating at like 10%, right? But then as soon as I get that substance in my body, I'm back up 80, 90%. Like, let's go, you know? Um, and so when you don't have it, for anybody like who has never gone through that, um, it's it's rough. But yeah, I just remember waking up for hundreds of thousands of mornings with that same feeling. Okay, so it's almost like you're saying you didn't feel like you could be in your own skin or, or be your own self unless you had the substance. Yeah, I couldn't be. I couldn't be me. Um, almost just like I was a less human of sorts. Mm -hmm. Um, I had no use. I had, I had no purpose, nothing right without that. And then, uh, as soon as I was able to take something, it was like, um, a car starting, right? Mm. Like I could go. Yeah. You feel like you could get through the day or the next hour or whatever that yeah. time period might be Yeah, until 
you needed it again. Oh, right? I always <laughs> needed it again. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you remember rolling over age 19 or so at your mom's, in your mom's basement. I need this. I need this. Mm-hmm. So take us a little bit further. Like what happened? What was your journey like more in your, um, active addiction? Okay. So things really kind of, uh, escalated the first time I tried heroin. Um, I remember I was just at a friend's house and he was like, Hey, you should try heroin. It's cheaper. Uh, it's better. You get more high. Um, just everything about it's better. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, let's go. You know, there's a lot of codependency in that as well. Um, and so I'm like, yeah, I want friends, right? Okay. You're telling me this substance that I like, it could even be better. Sure. So it's like all that rolled into one. So, um, I never had a problem with needles as a kid. I remember being proud as a kid that I wasn't scared to go to the doctor to get a shot. Wow. I didn't care. And so he's like, all right, well, he goes, you know, he tells me that I have to shoot it up. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm that little kid. Like I'm proud. Like I'm not scared of the needle. So, um, we do it. And then once I get introduced to heroin, it's, I mean, it's been, I'm trying to think back on everything, but it's been a wild ride for sure. Uh, multiple, multiple rehab stints. Um, I've been to rehab nine times in and out of Hope is Alive homes, in and out of other sober living homes. And uh, I went to prison in and out of jail. Uh, there's just so much that, that came from that one decision to inject heroin. Mm. So what I just heard you say, and I was about to ask the question, so I'm glad you already said it. So from the time you started, you know, you said you're in and out of rehab nine times. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's some listeners out there. I remember when my husband went to treatment for the first time, when we were checking him in, they asked, how many times has he been? And I, I was like, one and only one time? They're going to have to do this more than, because I didn't understand, right? Uh-huh. And so you said nine times, in and out of prison, you know, multiple sober livings. Why... Didn't those things work for you? Hmm. Multiple reasons. Um, but I think uh, the main reason is that I was never totally willing to surrender. Mm-hmm. And that's not just that I'm an addict. It's also surrender- surrendering control, surrendering pride. Um and so, because every time I tried to get sober, go to rehab all the times, I always wanted to hold on to some sense of sense of control, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, for a long time, I didn't even think I was an alcoholic. I was a drug addict. I was an alcoholic. Well, alcohol- so you were able to admit that you're a drug addict, mm-hmm. but you weren't an alcoholic. Yeah. Okay. And that took me out the end. But but even way before that, uh, I wasn't willing to work the steps. Mm. And then. Um, you know, okay, I'm willing to work the steps, but I don't know about this whole God thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's, uh, well, I think I need a, a a woman to to make me feel happy, right? Mm-hmm. That took me out. And so there's all these little, I, I always wanted to hold on to some sense of like, okay, yeah, I can keep this, mm-hmm. you know? And it took me out every time. Yeah, and so I think so many times as listeners, like when we're on the other side, and thinking, oh, prison, that will be their rock bottom. 
<laughs> oh, if I make, if I make them go to rehab, they'll find it there. If I make them do this, you know, and, um, you talked about control and your mom talked about that on her podcast, how that's something that she had to work through, through her 12 steps is that control aspect. And it almost sounds like you're still trying to take control like, okay, I'll do it all except this one part, right? In recovery, you have to be 100% in, right? Yeah. Maybe 110, 120. And so you had to be willing to surrender and admit like, okay, I'm not just a drug addict, I'm an alcoholic as mm-hmm. well, right? And surrender all those things um, and get out of, you know, get past that pride and push your own pride aside for it all and your own control and realize like, you know, I, I, I can't, this disease is controlling me, but I need to take, you know, what's that, what's first step? Step one. NMAA. I admit that I am powerless, right? And so it's like taking that, that step in saying like, I, I'm powerless over this. Right. And being willing to admit the exact to that step is that I am powerless over drugs and alcohol and that my life had become unmanageable. Okay. And that, did you not, did you feel like that didn't happen until you finally admitted like all of that, like the pride is gone, the control surrendering, all that stuff. Yeah. Not just that. Like this last time I came into Hope is Alive, um, I had surrendered not just that I was an act alcoholic, but that I was codependent as well, mm. uh, that I was a love addict as well, um, that I needed Jesus in my mm-hmm. life. Right. So it, it's, it's all areas. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, I want to go back and talk about a little story your mom was talking about when she was on the podcast was, um, you're at Valley Hope. That was one of your rehabs. You said you're at nine. And so she said that she always had rock star boundaries. Those were her exact words. I had rock star boundaries. And so she said that she had gotten a phone call from your counselor at Valley Hope and saying, um, you need to pick, come pick him up or, you know, he's, he's relapsed, you know, and your mom's like, well, what, what am I, you know, basically told the counselor, you guys need to figure it out. Right. Um, and then she came and picked you up and took you to another rehab. What do, do you remember very much of that story or that situation? I'm, I'm kind of curious. I'm sure my listeners are too. Like, what is your perspective of that? Okay. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. We can laugh about it now, but, uh, so, okay. I, I relapsed at Valley Hope, right? It's this whole thing where we drive to Tulsa to get some stuff and then come back. And those who aren't familiar, Tulsa is like, uh, an hour and a half drive from Cushing, right? So we go there, we're getting back at like three in the morning. We do the drugs, right? Uh, we get caught that next morning, you know, um, they call oh, so house. while you're at rehab, you left to go get stuff. In the middle of the night. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the next morning, right, they're, they're telling me that I, I can't be there anymore. Um, and so I tell them to call my mom like I always did. Mm-hmm. Um, and they call her and she was done. I mean, she was fed up. I don't know where this stint was in my history of rehabs, but it was towards the end. Maybe like six or seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what she said in that phone call. Uh, she touched on it in your podcast. I just know that she wasn't willing to bring me home, mm-hmm. you know? Um, 
but she was willing to facilitate me going to another place, uh, Rob's Ranch. And uh, so she came, she picked me up, and it was quiet, right? I was just like swimming in shame and guilt, mm. you know, um, because I did it again, right? Uh, and so I'm thinking like, is there any way that like I can make this better or something, right? Subliminal message this or something. So I remember this Matthew West song called Forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And and I play it. I don't know how many times I played it, probably three or four. Um, but I just tried to like break the door down a little bit. You know, when there's like awkward silence and people are mad at each other and you talk about something totally random, like, um, you know, the weather or something funny, you know, uh, just to break the ice. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I was trying to do. Um, But it is funny, but it was not a funny moment at the time. Yeah, yeah. And so so your mom kind of talked about her story and her journey and her journey to recovery. How do you think her recovery, being on a road to her own recovery, um, impacted you finding sobriety and recovery? So... I had, I said this in a, a finding hope meeting I did a few weeks ago is that I wasn't, I wasn't able to get sober and to get the help that I needed until my mom got the help that she needed because I was so codependent on her and probably vice versa, mm-hmm. but like something had to give first and it was her. Um, and so towards the end I went to prison. Um, I got out. I went straight to a Hope is Alive home in Tulsa. I relapsed within a month. Um, And I remember the home in North Carolina had just opened. Mm. Right. And so my mom was not able, was not willing to do, that's the key word there, willing to do, to rescue me again, to do anything for me again. She was willing to pay for my flight out there Mm -hmm. and that's it. Um, and so thank God that house opened in North Carolina, but I flew out there and, um, I think that was the space that allowed both of us to really kind of get the help that we needed Mm -hmm. to get fully healthy in a sense. Um, but yeah, no, like her doing all the work that she did, uh, empowered me to, to, well, inspired me to do the work that I needed to do. Well, I like that you said empowered too. Empowered and inspired, right? Yeah. It's like, okay, she's working her own program, right? Like, yeah. She's and she's not willing to rescue me. I like that. You said that she's not going to rescue me anymore. So a little backstory. I, I'm an only child. Okay. I grew up with a single mom. My dad was in my life, but it was me and my mom, like our whole lives together. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, I told you I might get emotional. Yeah. Um, and so I've said almost my whole life that my mom is my hero. Mm-hmm. And, and I hated everything that I did to her. And I internalized a lot of it, mm-hmm. probably if not all of it. And, um, But that's why this this addiction is so sick because I kept doing the things, 
you know? Even though you knew you were hating everything, I you kept doing it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hurting the one person that I love most in this world, my hero, but yet I couldn't stop, you know? And so, and so we just needed a break. We needed that space, you know? And, um, yeah, so I went to North Carolina and, uh, I really love our story thinking back on it, both mine and hers, but, um, yeah, that was the catalyst. That was the catalyst was her doing the work that she needed. And, you know, which is important. Like I always tell my finding, my members of finding hope or anyone I talk to on the phone, like we have to get ourselves in our recovery to give the opportunity for our loved ones to find recovery. Cause we have to, like you said, we have to stop that rescuing behavior. We have to, um, take off our superhero capes. I know you called your mom your hero and she is a phenomenal, you know, but sometimes we wear it thinking, oh, we know better. We're going to take care of this. And, you know, we can hear you and I can see you. The viewers can't, our listeners can't see you, but I can see that emotion in your face and your eyes. And you knew you're hurting her. And I hear all the time, like, why can't they stop for me? Why can't they stop for that? And, Yeah, I can see it. Like you wanted to, but you just couldn't until you had that distance and your mom was doing her own thing, working her own recovery and, you know, staying. She's the one that has always said, stay in your own lane. And she was staying in her own lane so that you could find your own lane to recovery as well. Yeah. So, um, but so you moved to North Carolina. You yeah. guys got some space between you. Um, that's where I met you. We yeah. went, I went out there for an event out there um, at one of the homes. Um, what happened there? Uh, so it wasn't all good out in North Carolina, mm-hmm. Amy. I'm sure you're aware. Um, it was good for a while. Uh for a long time. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, I was almost about to graduate and I mentioned how, uh, relationships has taken me out in the past. Mm-hmm. That's exactly, exactly what happened this time. Um, I got in a relationship. It wasn't healthy. Uh, I ended up moving out over it. The relationship ended and that's when my alcoholism skyrocketed. Mm. Um, and I didn't, I, it just hit me right before I knew it. I was full blown. I was a personal trainer at the gym and my boss had to send me home one day because my clients could smell it through my mm. pores. So wow. I was waking up and hitting the bottle and I, I didn't stop hitting it until I was unconscious mm. at night. You know, it had gotten that bad. And so that was like a, a year, maybe a little over a year long process where I was, I was just, consumed by alcoholism Mm -hmm. and uh, I went to treatment in Wilmington Treatment Center the last time I went to treatment and um, and I went back to Hope is Alive I I always go back to Hope is Alive because I love Hope is Alive and Hope is Alive was never the problem it was me Mm. I couldn't get out of my own way wow and so I went back and I was fully surrendered and uh, and I'm still sober now Um, 
I'm a staff member for yeah. Hope is Alive. Yeah, you are. I'm the program manager of the Greenville home. Yeah. And, uh, just opened up a new home in North Carolina. And, I, and I'm blessed and I'm honored to be there. But that that's kind of what happened in North Carolina. Yeah. So, so good. So good. And thank you for being so vulnerable and open and honest with us. Cause I know that's hard and, um, transparent and we can learn so much from listening to your story. And so, you know, you're so close to graduating, almost that finish line, right? Like, and our program's not easy, right? Right. (laughs) You know, and, but you push your pride aside and came back. Yeah. And, you know, we welcomed you back with loving arms, open arms, and here you are again, thriving and doing amazing things for the men um, in North Carolina and in your program. And so um, I'm so proud of you and I'm excited that you're on staff now with us and um, that you're here in Oklahoma today so we could do this. Um, But I just want to ask you, um, what advice or tips would you give families who are listening today and their loved one is still in active addiction? I think there, there's so many things, but the thing that just first popped in my head is that it is possible to love somebody to death mm. because I think for a long, and I've seen this happen too mm-hmm. with, with residents, is that the mom or the dad will do everything they can to rescue and help. I'm doing that with quotation mm-hmm. marks. Um, their loved one when when really they're just pushing them closer and closer to death. And because I'm gonna I'm gonna take as a drug addict, I'm gonna take every inch you give me. Whatever you allow me to to get away with to do, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um and so saying no is is hard but it's so worth it and I just remember all the times that my mom finally started telling me no and then I'm like okay this isn't working anymore what would you do though at the beginning when she would say no I get pissed yeah I'm like what what do you mean Mm -hmm. you know um she wouldn't be like, oh, okay, bye. It took, you know, yeah, <laughs> multiple times of her. I'd freak out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, never anything crazy, you know, like violent or anything, but like, I get mad, mm-hmm. right? Because I want to get high. I was like, stuck in selfish behavior, right? And thinking. Um, and so telling no, saying no, but like loving people to death, the boundaries is important, but with every boundary, we teach this in our curriculum, is that there has to be a consequence. Mm-hmm. If you don't follow through on the consequence, then the boundary means nothing. Mm-hmm. So, um, which I think is really important in setting boundaries, uh, is reinforcing the consequence. So what that would look like for somebody listening, I don't know. Um, but, but for me, my mom would set boundaries as if I'm not home by a certain time, then I'm not getting in the house. Mm. And so, um, There'd be times I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be able to get in the house Mm -hmm. and, uh, and just different little things. Um, but, but I think those, those are really important boundaries saying no, but just 
loving someone to death is something that I see that I get really frustrated with uh, with when I see it. Give us maybe one example of what, you know, we can say loving them to death. So what would be an example that you have seen? Well, I had a really close friend in North Carolina. Um, and he had a brother, but this, my friend was the favorite and, uh, he was a resident and me and him were really close. He would come in my room late Mm -hmm. at nights and, and just talk. And, uh, but he, he would, he would relapse. He'd come back and relapse, come back like, like me. Um, and we were both out of the house together. But there was a common theme um, in our stories that his mom would always give him money, bought him a new car. Uh, he would always call her for gas money, mm. things like that, right? And she would always do it. Um, a new apartment. Uh, when he get when he got kicked out, then he could stay at her beach house. Mm. Um, you know, because she didn't live in locally. But she had a beach house, so he, he would stay there. Um, and he moved to Raleigh, and uh, I don't know how it happened. I know he overdosed. Mm-hmm. I know he's no longer with us anymore. But um, that's one that I think about. That's probably the hardest loss that I've uh, had personally mm-hmm. just in the last uh, year or so. Yeah. That is hard. That's hard. You know, and sometimes if you're listening, thinking, oh, that's me. Like it's, we think we, if we do this, this will get them sober. If we do this, this will get them sober. Or they might even tell us, oh, I need gas money to go to my job. Well, what happened to your money that you're making at your job to get gas? Right. You know, and so we think we're helping, but really we have to look back and we've talked about it on here before. Like, if they can do it, if they should be able to do it on their own and you do it, that's enabling. Um, so I'm going to flip it now. What would you tell now that you're in recovery? And I think so many times I see it and your mom and I kind of talked about it too, is when our loved ones get in recovery, so many times the families think, Oh, they're fixed right? They're fixed. They're going to be sober, you know? Oh, they're, you know, six months sober. Now I'm going to get them a car or, oh, I'm so proud, you know, which we are, we're proud of every step they take. But what would you tell someone if their loved one is in recovery? So this is difficult for me because my mom has never, I've never really seen her act like this with me to where she thinks I'm fixed. Um, at least not recently. Uh, but your mom's been in a working program yeah, for a while. So that leads So me what to, about like just in general? Well, just how we have to work a program every day. I think they have to work a program mm-hmm. every day as well. Um, and so I, I go to AA, I do, I go to all these meetings, right? I have a, I have a community out here that can hold me accountable on my stuff. I think it's also important for the family to have their own community as well, right? So there's Al-Anon, there's Finding Hope. Uh, the one thing I love about Finding Hope is it feels like there's more connection to family, right? Just like Hope is Alive is a family to mm-hmm. homes. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, 
that they have that outlet, mm-hmm. right? Because just because I stop drinking and getting high doesn't mean that I'm going to stop messing up, mm-hmm. you know, um, because I'm human. And uh, I think it's important to have their own outlet to be able to manage um, if I mess up, right? If it's my mom and I mess up, if she can talk about it with her friends um, or even if, if the family member is going through some stuff, right? Um, whatever, they can talk about it. But I, I'm going to mess up. And so it's important that my mom has uh, a foundation mm. already already built, tools in her tool belt uh, that she can lean on um, when stuff goes a little bit sideways. So- I like what you said about that foundation. So we can have that foundation, but we have to build on that foundation, right? Yeah. And so it is. I love that. Yes. You know, recovery is for life for you and it's for life for us too. And I, I mean, I, I'm going to probably say a million times on here, like we, it's not just the tools we learn at finding hope isn't just, um, stuff you know, to use with our loved one. It's for life. And Mm -hmm. I I feel like AA is probably similar, right? Like any relationship you're in, whether it's with a coworker, family or close friends or any relationship, the tools you learn are going to help you give you that peace back, that hope back. Um, And so I love that, that your mom has that foundation. And then just even if you have that foundation, continue to go, you know, if anything to support that next person that comes in Mm -hmm. or, you know, my husband relapsed after five years. Most people would think, well, how did he relapse after five years? Well, he's an alcoholic, right? And so I needed that group and I'm so glad I was in a much healthier spot to respond to that relapse than I would have been if I hadn't been going to meetings that whole time. Um, and so we're going to wrap up here, Dylan, but I just want to ask, is there anything else you would like to share or anything um, with our listeners while I have you? Oh, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> uh, uh, no, not really. I, I mean, I think it's I just kind of summed it up with what I, with what I said, really. Mm-hmm. Um, just keep doing the work. You know, mm-hmm. keep building on that foundation. Um, never try to always keep an attitude of learning, right? Um, stay in a growth mentality. Sometimes I grow a little bit. Sometimes I grow a lot. Mm, but I always good. try to take one step forward um, because, you know, we say it here at Hope is Alive a lot, but lives are literally on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and so complacency is just not an option for me anymore and it shouldn't be an option for for the finding helpers as well yep um so because people are dying every day we both know that yeah unfortunately and so I like to wrap up and give uh, my listeners a challenge because I'm all about okay we can sit here and listen but what's the application right and so um I'm gonna I just I go based on some of the stuff you said and just what you're saying right now like attitude of learning so my first challenge is to give yourself grace first of all and to know that this is not um you don't have to be at the top of the staircase you don't have to start from the bottom and run all the way to this top. Take that one step today. Take that next step the next day. And if you fall, get back up. It'll be okay. We are all human. Give yourselves grace. 
And um, my next challenge is get plugged into a meeting as some sort of support group, Finding Hope. We would love to have you just so you can be surrounded by people who, first of all, understand what you're going through. You can build that foundation and you can grow on it. And so I just want to say thank you guys so much for joining us today. And you can learn more about Finding Hope at findinghope.today, as well as Hope is Alive at hopeisalive.net. And don't forget to register for our Finding Hope retreat before it fills up. I'd also love for you to give us a five-star review, share this on social media, and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next hope-filled episode. Thanks again for joining me, Amy LaRue, and our special guest, Mr. Dylan, in this episode of Finding Hope. And remember, you are not alone, it's not your fault, and there is hope. This episode of the Finding Hope podcast was brought to you by Hope is Alive Ministries. To learn more about Hope is Alive, visit our website at hopeisalive.net. If you are in need of immediate assistance, don't wait. Call us now at 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. That's 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. To find out more about Finding Hope and how you can get involved in a meeting close to you, visit findinghope.today.